Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking about Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, and the sniper shootings in Dallas. And I'm going to speak to sports writer Scoop Jackson of ESPN, former editor of Slam Magazine, about these issues. And I've got a Just Stand Up Award this week, a very special one to give to six athletes who really raise the bar in responding to this crisis. But I actually want to start the show by reading something that Scoop Jackson sent to me over email. It hasn't been published yet, and it was 1,800 words when he sent it to me. So with his permission, I cut it down to about 800 words, and I wanted to read it to kick off the show because it gives a pretext to our discussion. These are the words of Scoop Jackson. Once they became connected, the spark was lit. The minute, I'm sorry, I forgot the times in which we lived, the second the media, both social and mass, packaged Alton Sterling's and Philando Castile's deaths at the hands and guns of non-black police officers, it became the all-too-proverbial straw that broke the elephant in the room's back, which led to the breaking of this country's heart. One death in Baton Rouge, one in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, five in Dallas, all senseless, all inexcusable, none random, or by mistake. Yet depending on who you speak to, interact with, or share beliefs, all unnecessary, but understood. Not one of these killings should make sense to any of us, but unfortunately to too many, they do. Many of those on the police force disagree with, yet understand, the deaths of Sterling and Castile. Many black people totally and categorically disagree with the route Micah Xavier Johnson took to retaliate against the police climate that too many black people have been living in for far too long, but many of us understand. And as wrong as that is, that is our truth in America. This is America's new reality. OJ got nothing on this. Oh, and George Zimmerman's walking around free. Johnson's reaction was to the packaging of the killings, of the culmination of killings of black men that he felt were an extension of him by being killed by police sworn to protect and serve. His reaction was not toward the unity on display at the rally in Dallas that night or at the Black Lives Matter movement that he had issues with as well. It was at the abuse of a power structure that allows the killing of 25-year-old black men who theoretically look like him to be almost accepted as the suspect-by-birth norm. All anger reaches a boiling point. Unfortunately, human beings don't believe that all anger has outlets. And when the buildup forces the words f*** it to escape their souls, death usually follows. Which honestly makes America no different from so many other countries. Yet it remains the country that refuses to claim it, to acknowledge that not only are we not different, we aren't any better. Dallas Police Chief Dave Brown stepped to a microphone and said that the police, quote, aren't used to hearing the words thank you enough for the people that need them the most, end quote. At what point does he think that black society is used to hearing I'm sorry from the people that are supposed to protect us when many of us are unjustifiably killed by those people who are apparently looking for a thank you? But power and privilege never surrenders an apology. Not even when cases of wrongful death pile up. Not even when there's video evidence that black life doesn't matter. Black people have been in this crisis with police for a long time. Damn near since there was an us and a them. 
And while this may be a crest of the issue with both us and them, this recent threefold of murder at the hands of both is not the end of the issues with them to us. Here's what's very real. America is no longer about hope. It is about survival. America doesn't want a harmonious society, never has. They want what they've always had, a society built on ruling class and hierarchy where pyramids aren't only schemes but the way of life. Harmony in America means that all others follow the rules of one. Harmony in America means all Americans must fall in line. U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch said in her official government news conference in response to it all, quote, We are a nation and we are a people and we stand together, end quote. Truth told, no we aren't, no we don't. Those were the words of Scoop Jackson and now to discuss what he wrote and what we're seeing, we got him right now on the line. So let's talk about this past week. I mean, first and foremost, talk to us about where your head was at as the week unfolded. Because first it's Alton Sterling, and the question is, oh, this was videotaped. I wonder if this is going to be the next thing that really blows up. And then Philando Castile happens right on top of that, also videoed. And then, of course, uh, the shootings in Dallas. Talk to us a little bit about your mental process as the week went on. Well, it's funny because as and I, I, I think I can speak for a lot of black people or African-Americans in this country about the first reaction. With every shooting, we kind of have this feeling that maybe this will be the one that sparks change. And it's funny that we feel this way because we've seen this so often over the years and we've seen mistreatment of black individuals at the hands of someone else so often. And you hear the outcries but nothing changes. We're always kind of almost waiting for that perfect constructed storm in order for the rest of the country to get what we're feeling. So, you know, my initial reaction as a black person was like, okay, maybe this is it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, once again, we look at that and say, okay, I don't see where anyone could find fault with what this individual did. And maybe they will see the wrongs that we see. You know, maybe America won't paint the picture. Well, this person didn't fit the description that the rest of the country needs to rally behind to understand our black plight in this particular situation. I'm thinking maybe this is it. So 12 hours later, when we see the video of Philander laying in the car, my mind went from maybe Alton, maybe the one that does it to telling my wife immediately, this is about to be a package situation. They're about to put these two stories together. And it was. Like, you woke up the next morning, 7 a.m., you know, Good Morning America, Today Show. They packaged these two events. The packaging of these two incidents, that tipped the scales. Mm -hmm. Somebody snapped. And then Dallas happens, and then what were your thoughts? Well, once again, let's go back to what we have to think about as being black in this country. When when situations jump off, one of the first things we think about the same way we think about when we see a black individual being killed or being, you know, dehumaned by someone in law enforcement is that maybe this is the one that gets it. When something goes bad, the first thing that comes to our mind is we hope they're not black. Mm-hmm. You know, we hope they're not one of us because now we're going to be the face of something else. And America has always found a almost brilliant way. And I say brilliant in the worst sense of the word, 
brilliant way to make us be the face of things that are, you know, not necessarily positive when it comes to humanity. Well, it's the most, one of the most insidious parts of, of racism is the difference between individual responsibility and collective punishment, whether it falls on uh, a person who happens to be white versus black. Oh, dude, look, I mean, and I hate to use a sports analogy, but we're in sports, but it's amazing to me at this point in time, you know, where you think of an individual celebrity, you know, dying a drug overdose, how Lynn Bias right. can trump Elvis Presley. Right. And Trump, Don Candy, you know, I can go down the line and all of a sudden the face of drug overdose becomes Lynn Bias. I can look at the individuals that have come across being HIV positive and, and dying because of the AIDS virus, you know, and the collection of hair and the face of that is Magic Johnson. I just want to underline that because I think that's kind of profound. The, the race of a promising 20-year-old basketball player made him more weaponized in the anti-drug crusade than the king of rock and roll and arguably the most famous person who ever lived. Am I lying? You're not lying, but when you, when you right. underline it, it's like, wow. And that's what I'm saying. So this is what we have to think of as black people. So when something goes wrong, that's the narrative that comes in, in our minds a lot of times, is that we're about to be the face of something else. So we hope that whatever went wrong, whatever hell that broke loose, we hope it's not black first. That gets to the issue of colorblindness. You know, that's the brilliant subtitle of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. She goes, she goes, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, like speaking about mm-hmm. how everybody can agree superficially that racism is bad, yet you can still have all these racist structures. What does it say? You might have heard this story. What does it say that these officers in Tennessee just got suspended and could be fired for telling jokes about Philando Castile, yet officers can't seem to be fired for actually killing people. Just what does yeah. that say about this country that a joke will get you fired, but a killing will not if you're a police officer? What does that say? Uh, this is typical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I look at America differently. I look at America through a different lens. I will put it this way to you. Let's take it to OJ. Mm-hmm. OJ basically, to a lot of people's mind, got away with murder, right? My mm-hmm. vantage point is that well, they're going to get his ass on something. And they did. Mm-hmm. And it's something I always tell my kids. Never get caught up on the technicality. Mm-hmm. Our society is very, very good in us getting caught up in technicalities. There's a Chuck D line that I preach also. Smart brother is going to be a victim of his own circumstance. And that applies to what I'm saying is that a technicality can do more damage to you than something much bigger than the technicality. So if you're a police officer and you happen because of the way the law is written can get away with murder, don't let a, a technicality that can be handled by HR, <laughs> by human resource department, be the thing that takes you under. Mm-hmm. But it will. You know, and that's across the board. That's a lot of times not dealing with race. As race, I'm pretty sure that law can be unbalanced in how it's applied. But in this society, Dave, you know as well as I do, you, and we have seen this in so many key places, especially we're dealing with people that are dealing with a certain amount of fame and notoriety. All the great things they can do, all it takes is one small thing to dismantle their entire career. Mm-hmm. One second, one thing wrong, and that's it, it's done. 
you could put, you know, 25, 30 years of Hokarian work in. You are a legend. If you would die the next day, you'd be a martyr. Yeah. Say the wrong thing on, you know, on television, have your microphone be open. You know what I'm saying? Just the wrong small thing. Can erase all of that. So die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. Exactly. But the thing that got you a villain is like, for real, that's what it was? Al Capone, with all the stuff that he did, what got him locked up? Tax evasion. The way I see it too, though, is I feel like we just have such a, a kabuki theater about race in this country that the powers that be, however we want to put it, we, white America, the government, are willing to put up with these racist policing practices as long as we dare not speak the name of race. And so, exactly. and, and that's, that's really, really disturbing. Like it speaks to a country that's eating itself, that's lying to itself, that's not willing to tell the truth about what's so apparently clear right in front of our eyes. And I think societies crumble when the emperor has no clothes. And yeah, so, so, so it's like, how dare you say something racial? You are fired. And oh, by the way, let's practice mass incarceration and um, extrajudicial murder of young black men and women. It's like how exactly. these things cannot exist side by side because the center will not hold after a while. But the foundation of where we are living at, Dave, is so flawed that this yeah. becomes the norm. Yeah. We still in this country teach our kids that this country was discovered by someone on land while the people were still here. And they don't have a problem with that. Right. And the kids soak it up just by nature of what it is. How can, what happens to a child that challenges that? Mm-hmm. Ask that question. What happens to a child that like raises his hand? Well, Mrs. Johnson, that doesn't make sense to me. If Indians or Native Americans were already here, how did Christopher Columbus discover this? Wouldn't they be the discoverers? Yeah. Right. Common just sister. But that's still the foundation of how this country operates. So, so why, why should it be any different when you see this hypocrisy? <laughs> That goes on when you see things that challenge the original narrative that are diametrically opposite of what is the truth. When the foundation itself is the exact same thing. So what do you think when you hear President Obama's response to all this, like, say, we're not as divided as perhaps we appear or we're not nearly as divided as people say we are? Because I see his vision, too. Because he's right, because I've had this conversation, not with, not with him directly, but I've had this conversation with a, with a few people when he does take this standpoint. And he's taking this, he's been very consistent about that. He said this on the um, bridge in, um, outside of Selma when he gave a speech. It's the exact same thing. You know, and I get that vision. And there is truth to that vision. You know, and I'm not arguing necessarily with that vision. The thing I respond to in that in one i understand his position and he has to say that because barack obama does not speak necessarily for one segment of this country he has to speak for everyone and he has to speak for calm the one thing i know about barack is that his affects is unlike many of ours and that's why i applaud him because this country would be in worse shape if the affect was built on emotions that i carry that if the affect was built on emotions that you particularly carry, you know, we need someone that sees everything from a certain eye level that works as close as it can for everybody. 
So I don't have a problem with that. But I also understand that he is correcting what he's saying and that it's not as bad. It's not what it used to be. That is factually true. But that does not mean the disparity is not the same. So I'm, I was raising the Obama quote because I, I read your words before we came on and you quoted something similar by Loretta Lynch who said, we are a nation and we are a people and we stand together. And then you have that powerful line at the end where you say, truth told, no, we aren't, no, we don't. So I right. think that truth needs to be a part of this as well. Like just the acknowledgement of reality. Right, exactly. But my direct response was not, if, if Obama had said that, I'm listening to his, his comments and I equate that to be directly about us and maybe about the country and how the country has evolved in that it's not what it used to be. But the same power struggle, I think, is different. Mm-hmm. I think as black individuals, all the rights and liberties that we have that we didn't have 50 years ago, that's true. But guess what? White America has advanced just at the same pace that we have. So as things were not the same for, uh, not the same for us as they were, things are not the same for white America either. Mm-hmm. We've all progressed. So that's what I'm looking at. Things have changed. Technically, yes, they have. But things I- are still the same. I see. I agree that there has been this major, because of the civil rights movement, this major step forward in consciousness in this country over the last 50 years. And yet the structures are still the same. It's like the great uh, civil rights, uh, Joseph Lowry, the great reverend. I once heard him speak and he said the criminal justice system in this country is like a horse in that despite everything that's changed over the last hundred years, a horse is still a horse. And the criminal justice system is still the criminal justice system. So how do, how do we dismantle that, though? Because you talk about hierarchies in your article. How do we right. dismantle that? I don't know, because I have a very similar theory where I say, this is America. Let's take away color and say everybody's green. Everybody in America is green. But here is America, though. If we're all getting on the bus, dark green in the back, light green in the front. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, every time I've heard people say things like, we just need to have a lot of interracial f***ing, and then racism will end, I'm always like, have you ever been to Northern Ireland? Because people will find a reason to hate each other, even if they look exactly the same on their skin. Right, right, exactly. The thing about it is that, you know, I don't think we'll ever get rid of racism, and I think it's a bad thing to get rid of racism. The one thing I think we need to just deal with is respect for other races. Mm. You know, because I think it's great that we are different. That's the power in this. We should be different. But the thing about it is when you don't respect that difference. Exactly. When you don't honor that difference in any way, that's where the problem of race comes in. You know, so I want to be black. I want to be a black person in this country. I'm glad that you're white. I want you to be a white individual. I want somebody to be Hispanic. Uh, I want them to be, I want everybody to be who they are. But the problem is, is when we don't respect that. And America historically has had a problem with respecting something that is different than what they envisioned America to be. And it just seems like in your article you talk about the pyramids and the hierarchies, that a lot of those pyramids and hierarchies are built on people fostering those divisions for their own personal benefit. Exactly. But that, Dave, you know as well as I do, that's about power and control. Yeah. We can talk about racism all we want. We, you and I both know that at the center of race, especially in this country, is power and control. Yeah. It's even probably more the reason that 
this country is fundamentally doesn't respect other races outside of the original or the secondary race that came in here in that they don't want to relinquish power. Right. You can't separate the two and not in this country. And that's why, because in order to open your arms and open your heart and open your soul to other races, you have to relinquish power. And that's the one thing that I think is fundamentally manifested in this country to those that aren't what they want to call indigenous to this land. <laughs> you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, as a sports writer, particularly one who has spent so much time on the NBA, your thoughts about some of the athletic statements of the last week, because I've been with some of them really impressed. Like it's been beyond just somebody sending out a picture or a meme or a tweet I mean, you've had some really strong statements from Carmelo, from Bradley Beal, from entire WNBA teams. I mean, what do you think the power is of athletes who speak out? Why is that important? Uh, Well, I think it's important because, especially as black individuals, sports has played a bigger role than just games we play. You know, it has been part of our emancipation. It has been part of our liberation. We have gotten a lot of our freedoms through athletes because athletics happens to be one of the things in this country that can level the playing field for us. And, you know, as, as, you know, as I say all the time, Dr. King was the one who thanked Jackie Robinson and Don Newcomb, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> for giving him the strength, you know, they gave him the power. So, you know, when you see athletes understanding their role as individuals and how it attaches itself to our existence as black people in this country, it's always a good thing. But at the same time, you know, and especially I love Carmelo, you know, coming out front and getting that started. I hate to say this day, but right now this is easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to see who sustains that voice over a course of time. Mm-hmm. Black power means more than a t-shirt. You know, yeah. black power means more than a tweet. Black power means more than one comment. You know, right now it's easy because you don't have anything. You don't stand to lose anything in this moment right now. When you start losing things, let's see how strong you stand as an athlete. Yeah. As an individual who really wants change. You know, so when you go into the garden, you start getting booed. Or you start seeing monetary drops in your portfolio because Procter & Gamble no longer wants you to do this commercial. Nike doesn't want you anymore. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Apple doesn't want you in his advertiser. Or, you know, you can't do a TED Talk anymore. You know, now kids don't want to see you in camps anymore. Parents don't want you to send you to, to your basketball camp or your football camp or your baseball camp because of a statement you made. You know, now you're not getting sponsors for your camp. Now your foundation is losing money because of the Right now it's easy because it's in the moment. And as much as I appreciate athletes speaking out and organizations speaking out, professional organizations speaking out, I want to see who's going to be around when it really gets tough. When those things start happening six, three, you know, 12 months from now, where are you going to be then? That's when I'll be like, all right, I'm all in. See, that's what's so fascinating about this moment, because like in 2014, when athletes were just doing the tweets or wearing I Can't Breathe shirts, that was a step forward. And we rightly applauded that. But now it's 2016 and you can't just do the same thing. It's like you got to keep raising the game. Dave, beautiful. Let me ask you, that's beautiful. Let me ask you this. What has been done in between those two periods of time? Please tell me that. That's the Please right question. Tell me what, has, what has been done between the I Can't Breathe t-shirts 
of Mr. Garner and right now. What collectively have athletes done as if the movement ended? Right. Not nearly you know enough. What I'm Not nearly enough. Thank you. The the only thing that I'll point out to, like in this period in between those two, uh, was Serena attaching her return to Indian Wells to raising funds for the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a legitimate organization trying to fight against the new Jim Crow. That was powerful, but that's just one person. And we need to have sustained movements, sustained organizations, and a sustained sense that athletes can actually come together and act collectively and not just put out these one-off single statements. Exactly. But at the same time, I do the same thing with Serena and I do the same thing with the University of Missouri football team because she had a personal beef with Indian Wells. Yes. You know, I want to see them do something outside of this, you know, that deals with society. You know, not their personal issues where it's involved. Like, like you said, when, when, when LeBron James and, and Miami Heat and Derrick Rose and everybody came out, you know, and spoke for the injustice that was being done that had nothing to do with athletics, that's what I want to see. Just like this, this had nothing to do with athletics, and you see more sticking out. Serena and University of Missouri, there was, there was personal involvement. I want to see something collective being done when it has nothing to do with their personal gains. Exactly, and that's what makes Missouri so important. Um, Connected as it is to police brutality, but also, of course, to what people are dealing with on that campus. The issue, though, that comes up, though, I mean, when we say, what are they going to do in the months ahead? I mean, staring us right in the face is the Rio Olympics, which we know could potentially be a place uh, for a political stance, a political statement, something that says not just to people in this country, but to the world, that we've got some serious work to do and some serious fights to wage. Unless you make that connection, though, you know, it's going to be interesting being in Rio yeah. you know, and not being in America, you know, if there is something said on, on that level. It will Let's be interesting. See. And I got two more questions for you. And first, I really appreciate your time. And the two questions are a little off what we're talking about right here. But I'd be remiss. I'd be accused of journalistic malpractice if I didn't ask them of you. First and foremost, the news today that is certainly um, you know, putting a, a lump in my throat is the news that Tim Duncan retiring after 19 years. My opinion, yeah. best power forward of all time. My opinion, player of his generation, generation being pre-LeBron. And so I ask you, like, what, what do you think Tim Duncan's legacy is all about? I, I, exactly what you said. We, you know, our nickname for him was Masterclass. And I'm writing a, a script right now for SportsCenter. The measure of greatness always in sports happens to be when a player makes the players around him better. Right? Mm-hmm. What do you call the player that makes the player, not, not just the players around him, but the people that watch him better, too? That was Tim Duncan. Mm, that's strong. One, I agree with you that he is the player of the generation, but he shares that with a couple other people. But what I love is that, and it, especially from an athletic standpoint, because you can really tap into people's personalities, how Kobe went out and how Tim went out. Now, those are two players of the generation, without question. Yeah. Right? But look at how they went out. Look at the need Kobe had for public appreciation. Mm-hmm. But look how Tim, like, I, that's not even how I roll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I say differently. And honestly, you got to say this too. Look at how Kobe spent his last couple of years effectively depleting the Los Angeles Lakers. And look how Tim spent his last couple of years mentoring people like Kawhi Leonard and LaMarcus Aldridge and setting them up for future success. Yes, yes. Got to say that. Yes, you can't be mad at that. Gotta say that, and can't deny it, that he has set up the Spurs for future success, and Kobe instead 
probably set a, a lot of those players back a couple of years if you look at their development. Yeah, he, he, he probably did, you know, especially <laughs> with being injured and not being able to be on the court. But, you know, it goes to, you know, looking at the organization. You know, we can read into that True. as well. Just as we read into how Kobe went out and how Tim went out, we can read into, you know, the organization. And here's the deal. You know, we've heard stories about how bad the Lakers organization has been since Dr. Buss has passed away. Mm-hmm. Tim never had that type of situation come to him in San Antonio, so there's a different consistency there. And I'm not trying to protect Kobe in any way, but I'm pretty sure if Dr. Buss was still alive, you would have seen a different situation in Los Angeles. No, that's very fair. That's And it's also very unfair to compare a team that's effectively run by R.C. Buford and Greg Popovich versus a team that's run by Brother Inferior. Right. And the lesson learned, when you're loyal to an organization, what direction it can go. True. You know, Kobe was quasi-loyal to the Lakers. And like you see, you see how that turned out. But there's reason because of that. I'm pretty sure if we go deep into his story, we can find reasons as to why he wasn't as loyal to the Lakers as Tim seemed to be to San Antonio. But there's loyalty there that Tim's like, I will give you my heart and soul to this organization. Mm. But look what happened with Dwayne Wade's loyalty to Miami. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I surrendered $25 million to the organization as a player, and you all can't give me Tim back in return? Yeah. Yeah, this is um, not good, and I'm not even sure what your Bulls are doing now, honestly. It's like a weird case of Voltron or something with odd right. parts sticking together. But guess what, Dave? What? It's better that they're doing something than if they had done nothing. <laughs> okay. I mean, Jimmy Butler at small forward. I mean, it's just it's this crazy kind of I know, thing. but Dave, think if they didn't get Rondo, didn't get Wade. No, that's you true. know what I'm saying? Right? I'd rather have them than not have them. At least there's an interest there. You know what I'm saying? Especially from a business standpoint, there's must-see TV. No, that, that is very sports. true. Right. And if you're thinking about it, Dave, you know as well as I do, you can never separate professional sports from business. So if you take the Dwayne Wade and Rondo situation where you're scratching your head from a basketball standpoint, like, I don't see what it makes sense, remove Dwayne Wade and Rondo and then think about what happens now and what the Bulls and who the hell is watching the Bulls and what interest the country has in them. None. Mm-hmm. But guess what? The Bulls play the Knicks, the country's interested because no, of Derrick Rose and Joe Kimnor. The Bulls play Miami. Now it's the way, way interest. People are going to watch that. The Bulls play Cleveland. It's more competitive now. We'll yeah. watch that. Right. And the Bulls play Minnesota because it's here. Yeah. They had none of that until they do this. So from a basketball standpoint, you're right. It could be Voltronic. It, could, it might not make sense. But from a business standpoint, paydays. You see, Scoop, this is the difference between you and me. I'm looking at this playing checkers. You're playing three-dimensional chess. <laughs> I would be remiss. Especially knowing you the way I know you. Because we have not spoken since this happened. No. Since the passing of Muhammad Ali. Yes. So I know you've spoken about it, but you and I haven't spoken about it. And I don't want to be a long conversation. I just want to, one, ask you how you are doing as a friend you know, and as a colleague. Because I know Thank what you. Ali meant to you and I know the time and the investments you spent on him. With yeah. him. And two, do you feel... Right now, in this moment that we're dealing with in America, that had he been here and not been sick, that things may have been different. Mm. That last question is is really deep. Um, I'll as as that's ruminating in the back of my head, I'll talk to you about the first. The first, I got to be honest with you. When I heard that Muhammad Ali was sick, my first thought was, "Well, this is a 
a, a gentle end for somebody who's been ill for some time. But then when he passed, and it was this idea of reckoning with, oh my God, we live on a planet without Muhammad Ali, that was actually difficult. That was difficult mm-hmm. to, to just live with, that he's just, his lack of physical presence, even mm-hmm. though he couldn't speak, even though, of course, mm-hmm. he was compromised in so many ways by his health. But the thing that really helped with the healing that I'm really glad I did, and seriously, all blessings to my partner for pushing me to do this, was being in Louisville for the funeral itself mm-hmm. and seeing the 100,000 people in the streets, seeing everybody chant Ali as the car went by for the last time, uh, speaking with people in Louisville, regular working class folks who knew him and who were influenced by him, and really understanding the way he made that effort to make that individual contribution to every person's life who he met, that he took that so seriously, that like you're meeting Muhammad Ali and I'm going to give you an indelible memory. I mean, that, that, that helped. And at least, mm-hmm. you know, so, so it was it, without question, it was, it, it was difficult, but at the same time to be able to be part of that kind of a mass celebration of somebody's life. Right. Uh, I mean, you just can't ask for, for a better send off. And um, as for the things that are happening today, I mean, it's interesting because if Muhammad Ali had never been compromised by his mm-hmm. health, I mean, who knows where he would have taken things, particularly in right. the Middle East, particularly in this age of Islamophobia, with him being mm-hmm. the most not the most famous person on earth, who, by the way, also happens to be Muslim. So, right. I mean, I, I really do think that had he been able to have full control, particularly in the 1990s. Let's forget about the 80s, which was kind of a lost decade for everybody. And he was in ill health and things were a mess for him personally. They were a mess for this country politically. Right. But like right. post-Gulf War, I really do think he would have made the kind of contribution that would have cut against what I think is one of the most damaging things we've seen in this country the last 20 years. And that's the disregard of people in the Middle East as human. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many people in the Middle East have died in the last 20 years at U.S. hands. If a fraction of those numbers of Americans had died, I mean, it would be chaos in the streets. And yes. yet, for some reason, that's we're right. willing to abide to that in this country. And that's, I think, one of the great moral failings of this generation. And I think Muhammad Ali would have had something to say about it. No doubt. No doubt about it. But it says a lot that it always, you know, uh, to me about this particular country that we stand on right now and that we live in right now is when, you know, the condition he had to be in for us, was not us, yes. but for this country to wrap his arms around him. Exactly. And the, mis- and the mistreatment they gave him for decades of his life. That will always, to me, be part of the story of America. One of the great damning indictments. Absolutely. Yep, no doubt. Man, I, I just wanted to talk to you because I thought your column was 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 really deep. But I got to tell you that uh, just speaking to you, not unlike going to Ali's funeral, is just like really helpful in dealing with these current tragedies that we're dealing with. So thank you so much, man. No problem. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for the opportunity, man. I'm glad you have a platform to do this. I'm glad you respect the platform to do stuff like this. So it's always an honor, my man. Always. No, you as well. Good luck, man. All right, man. Talk soon. Be well. That was Scoop Jackson, who writes for ESPN, former editor-in-chief of Slam Magazine. You can follow him on Twitter at IamScoopJackson.
now the Just Stand Up Award this week. There were athletes, tons of athletes, who spoke out about Black Lives Matter and the various shootings over the last seven days. But what we have right here are six times that athletes spoke out and actually raised the bar. They didn't just send out tweets or whatnot. They actually raised the bar and I think broke new ground in terms of athletic struggle and in terms of just standing up. So I'm going to read through who those six were right now. First and foremost, Carmelo Anthony. The New York Knicks star unleashed a mini manifesto about the need for athletes to speak out. The most potent and perhaps the most historic part of his missive is when he wrote the following. There's no more sitting back and being afraid of tackling and addressing political issues. Those days are long gone. We have to step up and take charge. We can't worry about what endorsements we're going to lose or who's going to look at us crazy. I need your voices to be heard. We can demand change. We just have to be willing to. The time is now. I'm all in. Take charge. Take action. Demand change. End quote. Not since Muhammad Ali, who Mello references earlier, has someone taken on the endorsers as a point of political pride. Granted, Ali said, God damn the white man's money, but it's a step in that direction, independence from those who seek to brand and muzzle athletes. We'll have a link to the entire text of what Carmelo wrote in the description of this podcast, or you can just Google search Daily News Carmelo Anthony and you'll see a stunning cover where they put his entire statement on the front page of the New York Daily. Two, Serena Williams. Serena is arguably the planet's most important athlete, and she took a break from the middle of playing for a Wimbledon title to speak out. She wrote, in London, I have to wake up to this. He was black, shot four times. When will something be done? No, really, be done. She then posted a description of what happened to Philando Castile. But beyond words, Serena also gave us a hell of an image on the Wimbledon grass court, raising her fist in the style of John Carlos and Tommy Smith from the 68 Olympics. Now, Serena has said this was not an intentional political act, but I got to say, there are few athletes more self-aware about their representative power, and Serena's intent is always to leave a mark. Three, Bradley Beal. Now, this might be a little hometown bias because people know I'm a big Wizards fan, but their starting shooting guard stood his ground in a manner rarely seen when athletes get pushed back for their words. After posting the hashtag Black Lives Matter on the same night of the Dallas police sniper shootings, he was flooded with criticisms, accused by internet scolds of being insensitive, and he was hit with the hashtag All Lives Matter as a response. Now, Beal, unlike some people, did not issue a hurried apology. Instead, he wrote, The issue at hand regards my race, and I have every right to speak on it. If you don't like it, it's a big-ass unfollow button on the top of my page. Saying all lives matter is like saying we all need air to breathe. We know all that. Killing a cop is no better than a cop taking a life. Innocent black lives are being taken by those sworn to protect and serve, not murder. When does it come to an end? And you wonder why people rage? We aren't getting justice, just more body counts. People are getting sick of this So yes... Black Lives Matter. That's Bradley Beal. Four, Leonard Fournette. Now, Leonard Fournette is a star runner at LSU, which is, of course, in Baton Rouge, where Alton Sterling was killed. He posed on social media wearing an Alton Sterling t-shirt. Now, this is important and worth mentioning because 
He's a college athlete with far less protection to speak out without fear of reprisal than the pros. And I think anytime a college football player, especially in college football crazy Baton Rouge, speaks out, it makes a big difference and it sends a shiver down the spine of the NCAA, a rickety, morally bankrupt, multi-billion dollar nonprofit entirely dependent on the compliance of 18 to 22-year-olds. Five, Cheryl Reeve. That's the coach of the Minnesota Lynx. And she, by the way, uh, is white. And she tweeted, to rebut Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter implies that all lives are equally at risk, and they're not. Black Lives Matter doesn't mean your life isn't important. It means that black lives, which are seen without value within white supremacy, are important. Now, I don't think it's also a coincidence that a team coached by Coach Reeve also is a team that just stood up as one. All the players, black and white, wearing shirts to commemorate the lives of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And that, of course, especially matters because, believe me, I went to college in the Twin Cities. They're called the Twin Cities, but together they basically almost make one city. It is a small, tight-knit community. And Philando Castile is from uh, right outside of St. Paul. That's where he worked, and that's where he was killed. So for them to speak out and to speak out so forthrightly and for them to come forward as a team led by Coach Reeve, that really matters. And now number six. That goes to Houston Street. Now, Houston Street, who's a pitcher for the Angels, didn't do anything that crazy. All he did was tweet, pray for Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and their families and then demand justice. My nephews are young black men and their future depends on it. So why does this comment resonate? Well, Houston Street is white and he's a baseball player. And the response from white male athletes, as well as any outrage from anyone in the world of Major League Baseball, has been close to non-existent. It's so crazy, baseball. After all these years, the the sport of Roberto Clemente and Jackie Robinson still is the most resistant to anybody speaking out politically and still treats political activism with the respect of a Jose Batista bat flip. Baseball is a sport that just sometimes seems immune to progress. So thank you, Houston Street for speaking out. And also it's important that he spoke out as a white athlete because I've written this before, but white athletes need to step it up. It is absurd that the entire weight of speaking out against these racist murders is placed almost entirely on the shoulders of black athletes. Black lives are under constant threat. If white athletes truly cared about their black and brown teammates, if they really are a family like every squad says, then they should take some of the damn weight. They can learn a lesson from the white football players at Missouri who stood with their black teammates when they refused to play unless the school president, Tim Wolf, was removed. Please listen up, white athletes. If you see what's happening, say something. Solidarity at this moment is not only key to winning a better world, it's a profound moral imperative. Now, I want to be perfectly clear about something. Those six I just mentioned, they are in no way, shape, or form all the examples of athletes who've spoken out. It's actually been remarkable how many have and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention people like Colin Kaepernick, Jabari Parker and especially NBA player Garrett Temple all of whom have said exceptionally strong things about the importance of fighting for justice so you know thanks everybody for listening to this week's show 
Thank you to my producer, Dan Bloom. Thank you to Scoop Jackson. If people want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you can contact me at edgeofsports at slate.com or contact me on Twitter at edgeofsports. And please, if you have the time, uh, rate the show, write comments, all that stuff, tell a friend, all of that makes a big difference. This is a word of mouth business when you do podcasts. So please spread the word. And last but not least, I want to say that we have such a great, and I'm so proud of our catalog of shows, particularly our five-part series on the life and legacy of Muhammad Ali, which Scoop Jackson had me touch upon earlier in the show. So please, if you get the chance, go to edgeofsportspodcast.com and check out our history. For everybody here at Edge of Sports, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.